We are taking a tour through the Bible from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament as, as far as wanting to know God's grand story, God's view of the world, God's view of reality. We want to know about the world we live in, why it is the way it is, and what is going to happen to it. And so we've been calling God's big story a meta-narrative. Meta meaning overall narrative story. The world has been telling us for decades that your individual story is what's important. Whatever you want your story to be, you can write your story. And yet, unless your story is rooted and grounded inside something bigger and eternal, then it's just a pointless story. You can't generate significance, ultimate significance for your own story. And certainly we're seeing the effects of a culture where everybody's intent on writing their own story with their own set of rules. Our society, our nation seems to be crumbling And we need to find our way back. And the way back is to get back to God's Word and understand why we're here and what our purpose is and how we're to live. And so we have this message we need to preach to our own hearts and understand and a message we need to understand so we can tell it to the world. And yet we come across certain aspects of life and certain aspects of God's Word that are difficult to understand at best, and at worst, we find maybe offensive to our modern state of mind. We look at the Old Testament and we might think we see barbarism and um, unsophisticated teachings. And this morning we come to one of those passages where the unbelieving world really wants to take God to task. Now, they have no right to take God to task. We understand that. And yet, we need to understand what their problem is. We need to listen so that we can have an answer for them. And we've been learning from the pulpit to be suspicious of our own sin nature. To be suspicious of our own sin nature. Beloved, I assure you that whatever problems the unbelieving world has with the Bible, deep down in places you may not like to talk about at church, you have problems with it as well. And it's only through faith and prayer and the study of God's Word and and maturity that we come to accept and not just accept but embrace these difficult things. You need to be able to create an environment in your home, and it's what we're trying to do from the pulpit, where these difficult questions can be asked without fear of ridicule or repercussions. Because I assure you, if these questions aren't allowed to be asked at home, eventually they'll be asked outside the home. 
and they will find a myriad of wrong answers. Now, if you don't want the question asked at home because you don't know the answer, then we can equip you with answers through the study of God's Word, through the preaching of God's Word, through our ABF group Sunday morning, through our small groups throughout the week. It's equipping the saints, knowing the Word of God, knowing what it means, knowing how to apply it to life. But if you don't allow these questions to be asked at home because not so deep down, you've got some real serious issues with much of what the Bible has to say. We need to bring that to light. You need to be honest about that. In humility before God. and Say, I don't understand God. It's okay as the psalmist would cry out to God, I don't understand your ways. But with humility... And God will show you and He will teach you. The Holy Spirit will give you enlightenment. So, we're going to go back to Joshua 2, 6, and 8 and look at the story of Rahab and Jericho. And the big question is, how could God destroy an entire city, including women and children? There's the 800-pound gorilla in the room, right? The, the saying, nobody wants to talk about, how could God slaughter, order the slaughter of women and children? The unbelieving world accuses the God of the Old Testament of being homicidal, genocidal, misogynistic, a maniac. I hate even saying those things from the pulpit about God. Surely He is none of those things. But if we saw a person or a people group wipe out another city, another people group, we would be outraged, would we not? Right, rightly. We see genocide in the Sudan, in Darfur, Rwanda, and now ISIS, and it is wrong. Indeed, it is terrible, vile. And yet the unbelieving world would say, well, your God did the same thing. Liberal Christians skirt around the subject by saying, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is different. He's a God of love and forgiveness and mercy. I guess they didn't read Revelation. You ain't seen nothing yet. And so as believers, we know we're to affirm this word, affirm God is truth, God is perfect, He is holy, He is love, everything He does is right because He does it, not because we say it's right, and yet, again, deep down in uncomfortable places, we're not so sure about some of the things we read in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. The question then is, how could God destroy a whole city? But in light of the entire story, I think a better question for us might be, how could God destroy a city but spare a prostitute? 
It is strange, in the midst of this utter destruction of the city, he spares a harlot and her family. How could God be merciful to this one person and not the rest of the city? So, difficult questions, but we need to come to God with our difficult questions, and God will answer our questions. The first thing we need to understand, then, is a bigger picture of God's wrath. A bigger picture of God's wrath. Paul tells us in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God, His anger, His righteous anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So we need to understand why God is angry. Where, what is the source of His wrath? Before we look at the inhabitants of Jericho and the Canaanites and their individual crimes, we need to understand that those are symptoms, not the root the root crime that for which God is revealing His wrath is the suppression of truth in unrighteousness. When you suppress the truth that God has revealed, then you will manifest that suppression of truth in all kinds of various sins. But the root sin is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now, why would God be so angry about that when we can start talking about the Canaanites sacrificing their children to idols, all kinds of sexual immorality, all kinds of vile, disgusting sins that make our skin crawl, and yet the Bible clearly reveals that the reason for God's wrath is suppressing the truth. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We, we are they. We are all without excuse. We know there is a God because of this amazing creation and all its complexity. We know there is a law because the law of God is written on our hearts and we understand that we are lawbreakers. We're very quick to point out when other people sin and when other people break the law, which is a proof unto itself that we understand the law. If there is earthly laws and earthly judges, then certainly there is a universal cosmic lawgiver and judge. And yet, from the very beginning, the first man and woman suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What was the truth? Everything God had revealed to them. God is truth. Everything He reveals to us is truth. There is nothing God tells us that is not truth. And when it pertains to His commands, everything He commands is right and good. In Genesis 2.16 
the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Judgment. Judgment. That is the judgment. The crime, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now this isn't like you telling your kid, don't take a cookie from the cookie jar. What was wrapped up in eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, in Genesis 3, we, we get more information. Satan tempts man and woman and says, God knows that the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll get to be your own God. You will know good and evil on your own. You will not have to ask God to define reality and morality. And isn't this the unbelieving world? For people who say they don't believe in God, they sure spend a lot of energy getting angry with Him and writing books to wish Him away. And so they know there's a God, and they are without excuse. Death, then, is proof of God's judgment. This is central to the whole argument this morning. Death is proof of God's judgment. Now let's walk down the Romans road a little. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if all have sinned and the penalty for sin is death, then shouldn't everyone be dead? For the wages of sin is death. Well, certainly everyone dies. Whether all at once when the walls of Jericho fell and the Israelites came rushing in by the sword, or whether it be one by one through quote-unquote natural causes, death is punishment for sin. Hebrews 9.27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Well, the first death was judgment. The first death is judgment, but Revelation says there is a second death, an eternal judgment for those who refuse to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So our first death is judgment. It is appointed for all men to die because all have sinned. So when we look at the Old Testament and see examples of God ordering the death of many at the same time, it's not because he's a homicidal maniac, as many scoffers accuse him of. It's that he is executing judgment on that group of people at that particular time. He could have let them live another 50 years and they die of natural causes and then he executes judgment. Beloved, you must understand and I must understand that death is not natural. It is very unnatural. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus knowing he would raise him from the dead minutes later. Why? 
because he loved Lazarus, and death is terrible. There would be no death if there were no sin. As sad as death is to us because we lose a loved one, and if they're in the Lord and we're in the Lord, we lose them temporarily, amen? What should be really sad to us is that it's a reminder of the penalty of sin. Nobody's escaping death because no one is without sin. I have a background in biology, and I find it fascinating that the unbelieving scientific world has no reasonable explanation for the fact that everyone dies. I know it seems like, well, of course everyone dies, right? Death and taxes. But when you start digging into the science past your freshman biology course, or even your undergraduate biology, you'd be surprised that there's no consensus among scientists as to why we must die. In fact, single-cell organisms continue to live. It's the multi-cell organisms that die. They just keep replicating themselves. We try to replicate ourselves, and we do a fairly good job of it until about age 40, And then so many mistakes and errors and mutations accumulate that the whole project begins to break down. And at age 43, I don't doubt what I read this week. I'm not going to complain, but I am saying I'm well past my prime. And if you're much older than 40, sorry, you're really past (laughs) your prime. Yeah. I couldn't wait till I turned 40 because I was always, it would make me angry that people would not give me uh, respect for my age because I look a lot younger than I really am. And I thought, boy, the day I turn 40, that'll change everything. Boy, it sure did. (laughs) I'm longing for my 20s and 30s again. And so when we get sick and we feel aches and pains and lately stuff that I used to be able to remember like that, it's like, okay, where is it? i got to dig for it. It's a reminder that I am and you are in the process of being judged as sinners. It's not what Charles Darwin taught that through death brings better versions of species. There's only one story I know where death brings life. It's a story about the cross. We'll talk about that later. Death is terrible whether it's a baby or a 90-year-old who has lived a quote-unquote full life. When it's an older individual, I guess we just salve our conscience by saying, well, it was time. They had a full life. If this life was all that there was, then 90 is not enough time. No amount of time is enough time. Keep in mind that 56 million people die every year. 56 million people. Try wrapping your head around that number. You want job security? Be an undertaker. 
I know it sounds morbid, but those people are never out of work. 153,000 people die every day around the planet. 6,400 every hour. At the end of this sermon, just think, 6,400 people will have gone to meet their maker. Are they ready? 106 every minute. 1.8 every second. Boom. Boom. In God's mercy, we don't get to see them all die all the time. It would be horrible. And so living here in the West where life expectancies are long and we have relative peace and we don't have war right in our face in front of us, it's easy to criticize the stories we read in the Old Testament. But I assure you, people living in war-torn countries have a different view of the Bible. They understand death. They understand judgment. Man finds it more palatable to accept arbitrary death than deliberate death as an act of judgment. See, the unbelieving world just says, well, death is just natural. It's just part of the circle of life. Because he doesn't want to have to face the fact that he is guilty and that death is judgment. So it's easy to ignore the fact that people are dying all around the world every second. But when an airplane hits the ground, it snaps us out of our stupor. We don't like a bunch of people dying all at once. But why? Why is it any different if 200 people die in an airplane than if 200 people die of natural causes? It's all horrible and terrible. In fact, our Lord Jesus made this point when someone came and asked him, what about that tower in Siloam that fell on those people on their way to go worship? You know, what's up with that? And you'd be shocked at Jesus' answer. And he said, and you too shall perish if you don't repent. Whether a tower falls on you or you get to live to the ripe old age of 95, death is coming because death is judgment. Let's get that through our minds. Death is judgment. God will judge all sin by penalty of death, but He'll do it according to His timing. The inhabitants of Canaan and Jericho were being judged specifically for idolatry and other religious practices that were an abomination to God, and he was making an example of them to the other nations. He was also clearing out the promised land to make room for Israel, to make good on his covenant with Israel. And Israel was supposed to come into the land and live according to God's commands and be a different kind of nation, a set-apart nation, as an example to the other nations to draw all men to the true God. And in as much as Israel has done this, they have been a light for the true God. And in as much as they haven't done this, God has had to judge and punish Israel. God threatened Israel as they were coming into Canaan that if you do the same things these people do, you too will be purged from the land. And indeed, they were purged from the land. 
But God has made an everlasting covenant with them and they're back in the land. Amen. In spite of the fact that the whole world is hell-bent on trying to get them out of the land. The annihilation of Jericho and other Canaanite cities is, was a specific and just act of judgment. And in God's providence and in His timing, He used that act of judgment to fulfill some other specific purposes. So I hope that helps you look at the destruction of Jericho in a new light. Look, all of these people were going to die eventually. And so am I, and so are you. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Look for the fountain of youth and live forever. Ain't going to happen. You can delay death in as much as it's in your power to extend your life. But as James teaches us, no one should say, Tomorrow I'll go to such and such a place and conduct business and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow has in store for you. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days, because indeed they are numbered. (laughs) At this point, the sermon's been kind of a downer. (laughs) Yeah. I had a preaching professor... Professor Montoya, and he'd say, Is there no balm in Gilead? You can't just preach judgment. Well, no, but there's no good news without bad news first. And there is wonderful good news. But history is filled with example after example of God judging sin. Every single death is an act of judgment by God. And sometimes we get very visible acts of judgment that we record and we talk about Pharaoh's army, the Red Sea closing in over them, the rebels in the wilderness, the earth opening up and swallowing them up. After the fall of Jericho, we talked about Achan and his family who stole some of the accursed things and hid them under their tent, and the whole family was complicit. And God judged the whole family through stoning and then burned the whole family. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, lying about their tithe, makes you want to retake offering. Maybe somebody out there is listening. God is serious. He's not one to be trifled with. Modern evangelical Christianity has declawed our God. Cheap grace we've peddled. Grace is only grace if you don't deserve it. What we deserve is death and punishment and judgment. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that He took our punishment on Himself and bore God's wrath for us, then that free gift of salvation is ours to keep. Noah's flood. You know, God once judged the entire planet all at once, save eight people. But maybe the single greatest example of God's act of judgment, death, is the cross. The most talked about event in human history. 
whether you're believer or unbeliever, long after I'm gone and done preaching and heaven forbid our nation ceased to become a Christian witness to the world, somewhere on this planet they'll be talking about the cross. An innocent man cut down in the prime of his life. Well, that happens a lot. So we think. There are no innocent men. Even that innocent man cut down in the prime of his life was a sinner, and the loss of his life was judgment. But Jesus Christ did not deserve to die. He was truly innocent by human standards and by God's standards. The only thing they could find him guilty of was blasphemy for calling himself the Son of God, which was truth. Yet on the opposite end of the spectrum, the Canaanites were no Boy Scouts. Sadly, probably that phrase is going to lose its meaning in the next decade. You know what I mean. The sins of Canaan. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. He keeps emphasizing His covenant name. I am. All rules, all righteousness find their root in me. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And then Leviticus 18 goes on to chronicle various sins that the Israelites needed to abstain from. And I don't want to read the list because it's rather graphic, but it includes many forms of incest, homosexuality, I should say homosexual behavior, bestiality, adultery, idolatry, and child sacrifice. The Lord says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Not only was the destruction of the people of Canaan judgment, but it was also a a purge, thank you, a vomiting out of all these detestable things so that God could bring in a nation and establish a nation that walked according to his laws. No syncretism allowed. A little yeast ruins the whole lump, as Jesus taught. I know particularly we see one sin on that list that is especially visible in our culture today. And we, as the same time that we say we need to reach people guilty of this particular sin, 
we need to be reminded that we're all sinners under God's judgment. And yet, there are some particular sins that God calls an abomination. So there needs to be a balance there. Yes, we reach out and love the sinner and hate the sin, but make no mistake about it. God is not celebrating this act. It is an abomination to Him, and He once destroyed entire cities because of it, Sodom and Gomorrah. But keep in mind that also idolatry and adultery and child sacrifice are an abomination to Him. And who isn't guilty of idolatry in this room? And though we may not put our children in the fire, how many times have we sinned against God by ignoring our children on the altar of convenience? We live in a culture now that is suffering the consequences of doing exactly that. Children now, as Paul says in Romans 1, disobedient to parents. And you're like, well, aren't all kids disobedient to parents? No, he's taking it a step further. These are children now who don't even respect authority. I overheard a conversation last week at church talking about some kids on a soccer field just blatantly disrespecting the referee and threatening him with violence. I may have gotten the story wrong, but that's pretty much what I heard. And yes, this is the seeds we've sown, and now we'll eat the rotten fruit of sowing rebellion. And need I remind us that, no, we may not sacrifice our children in the fires, but the vacuum hoses of the abortionist, 40 million children slaughtered on the altar of convenience since Roe v. Wade was passed. Before I go on, I tell you that God's grace is available to anyone who would call on the name of the Lord. I know in a room this size, there has to be at least one or two who has personal experience with abortion. God forgives Even that he can forgive. Leviticus 18.24 Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And Israel is not immune from God's wrath. God warns, you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. And God indeed did vomit Israel out of the land through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And those weren't righteous people 
by any stretch of the imagination, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Vicious, vicious people showed no mercy on their victims. Very ISIS-like. So don't think for a second that the inhabitants of Jericho, that it was some vacation destination, some oasis in the desert. By all accounts, it was a foul, evil city filled with all manner of abominations to God. The question isn't, why did God destroy the city? The question is, why did He wait so long? Other sins of Canaan. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. What other detestable things could there be? There shall not be found among you anyone who makes a son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. And each one of those is a separate and distinct form of idolatry. You can look up, especially if you have a study Bible, what, what each of those entails. And you're like, well, that's, that's an ancient, unsophisticated, barbaric cult. No, it's around us. It's here in Tehachapi. I guarantee there are places where you can get your palm read or go to a seance. Be warned this morning, all who hear the Scriptures, these things are detestable to God. They are not to be dabbled in. Whether they're horoscopes or Ouija boards, palm readers, fortune tellers, spiritists, this is an abomination to God. They're detestable to Him. God wants us to listen to Him and commune with Him and not to be fascinated with detestable things. Now let's get to the good news. God is just and He is merciful. Simultaneously. It's not that the Old Testament God was the God of justice and wrath and the God of the New Testament is the God of mercy. Listen to what he says about the other cities in the surrounding areas. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city... All its spoils you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Adopt the women and children into your family. This isn't forced rape like we see with ISIS. It's an act of mercy to the women and the children. But if the city will make peace with you, then you're to allow it to remain. This was different than we see the armies of that day and age where a scorched earth policy was the way they waged war. 
And again, people are tempted to say, well, that was then, this is now. What are you kidding? Are we not teaching history in school anymore? Thank you. Even God, when He reveals His name and His attributes to Moses, when He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and says, My glory will pass by you. How does He describe Himself in this pivotal scene in the Old Testament? He passes by Him and He proclaims the Lord, Yahweh, I am, the Lord God, compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The f- God chooses to reveal himself first and foremost as a God who is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. And the scoffers will say, well, I don't see compassion and and grace. He just wiped out an entire city. Beloved, the problem is we have such a low view of sin and such a low view of God's holiness that when He does act to judge a group of people supernaturally, it's shocking to us. And as we get to know Him more and more and better, what should be more shocking is that any of us are here at all. You take a righteous prophet like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 and he gets a picture of God in the throne room. He's immediately undone. What, a, what an amazing word. Undone. I am undone. I don't know exactly what that means, but I have an idea. Woe is me as I'm a man of unclean lips, surrounded by people of unclean lips. So what about the women and children of Jericho? Yes, they blew the trumpet, the people shouted, the wall fell down, the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. By the way, archaeologists have discovered that this is exactly the way it happened. There was two walls that surrounded the city. The outer wall wasn't made with the same material as the inner wall. The outer wall crumbled, making a ramp right up over the inner wall. Rahab's house was wedged in between the outer and inner wall of the city. So when the Hebrew says Rahab lived in the wall, it's not a misprint. She lived in the wall. And when the Hebrew says that the men went up into the city, it literally means they went up into the city because there was a ramp God made. So what about the women and children? We need to make some points then here. I think you're catching on. Women and children aren't innocent by virtue of gender or age. We are all sinners. We are all guilty. Deserving of death. When we die is God's prerogative and how we die is His prerogative. It's not if, but when. However, there is good biblical arguments that very young children are spared from eternal 
judgment until they have the mental capacity to repent and believe. It's a controversial doctrine. Personally, I do hold to this doctrine that young children, when they die, immediately go into the presence of the Lord. And well, at what age is the age of accountability passed? I don't know. That's God's business, not mine. I'm not setting an arbitrary age on yesterday. Your kid wasn't culpable for his sins. He had a birthday. He better repent. But we need to remember that death is not the final judgment. It is possible that some of the people killed in Jericho and other Canaanite cities had saving faith like Rahab just because he didn't spare them and let them live 10, 20, 30 more years doesn't mean that they were eternally judged. The story of Rahab is simply proof that God will accept anyone who places their faith in him. However, people who have saving faith aren't guaranteed a long earthly life, but we are guaranteed eternal life. Amen? And so believers all around the world are persecuted and martyred for their faith. Sometimes placing your faith in God shortens your earthly lifespan, but it lengthens your eternal lifespan. So, how could God destroy a city but spare a prostitute? Simply, she put her faith in the living God. Had nothing to do with her being a prostitute. The fact that she's a prostitute only heightens the fact that it's not by our works or our righteous behavior that save us. It's calling out to God for mercy. She didn't clean up her act and then God said, okay, maybe we'll let her in. She heard the truth, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, she uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh. She's heard about Yahweh. The Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She's denouncing all false gods and idolatry. He is God. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that is the spies that she hid in her house, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. We know from the book of Hebrews that Rahab not only was spared, but she had saving faith, and we will meet her in heaven, all those who believe in Christ. We don't hear about the rest of her family. We can't assume the rest of her family had saving faith, but they were spared temporarily from the onslaught of the Israeli army. I hope that all of her family placed their faith in the true God as well. The text doesn't tell us. We do know that, again, later, after Jericho goes down, they attack a small city called Ai, and Israel's defeated. And it's because there's another family that 
gives us a contrast to Rahab and her family. This family knows Yahweh God. They've seen Him do miracles. They know about His holiness. They know about His Word. Don't assume that just because people on the other side of the world may not have all those things that they can't be saved. Salvation is by faith. There's plenty of people here in this country who have heard about God, heard about Jesus Christ, know what's right and wrong, and they will not place their faith in the true God. Achan's family did not. In fact, they didn't even fess up to their sins until God supernaturally revealed that they were the guilty family. Now, some people... And I read a lot of commentaries on this, and it kind of is makes me want to laugh. They get all caught up in Rahab's lie. How could God bless this woman after she lied? Oh, well, when did she lie? It says, And the king of Jer- Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Lie, number one. Right? Because she told them, I've heard about your God. I know you're going to destroy the city. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. Lie number two. I do not know where the men went. Lie number three. And if you pursue them quickly, you, you might overtake them. Lie number four. And so a lot is written in the commentaries about Rahab's lion. What are we to make of that? And I'm sitting here saying, the woman's a harlot, and you're worried about her lying to save her own life. I hope this doesn't bother you. Why would God save a liar? God saved me. You've never lied? If you say no, you've just lied for at least the second time in your life. This misses the whole point. God saves sinners in the condition we are when He finds us. Filthy, rotten, unrighteous sinners. Through His sanctifying work, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, then I'm hoping we'll find out that Rahab put the prostitution behind her and the lying. God's not waiting for us to clean up our act. That's not how it works. Hell will be filled with moral people who thought they were safe from God's wrath. And they tell Rahab, we will spare you and your family if you tie this scarlet cord on the window. Wow! Where have we heard that before? Paint the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost and you and your family will be spared. A scarlet cord hanging from your window told people of that day that a prostitute lives here. And to this day, 
we talk about the red light district in Amsterdam that lets you know which houses have prostitutes if they have a red porch light. And so the world uses this symbol for iniquity and God uses it for righteousness. And the world mocks us when we sing nothing but the blood of Jesus and yet it is the most precious truth to us. We're like Rahab the prostitute tying the scarlet cord on our window begging for God's mercy. If you truly know Jesus, you should identify with Rahab. And however, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. Joshua spared. Yeshua spared. Yeshua, Jesus spared. That is what the name Joshua is. It's Jesus. In the in the Greek and the Septuagint, it says Yesu. Yeshua spared, saved them. Jesus saves. He's coming back as judge. And yet, for those who put their faith in him, Joshua will spare. Yeshua will spare. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. The fact that she hid the spies and lied was actually proof that she had faith. Faith always demonstrates itself with works. Now, we'd much rather see righteous works. But it takes great faith to hide the spies. She knew what would happen to her if she was caught hiding them. We read some verses from Romans. Let's finish those verses as we close. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You can replace Him with God because Jesus is God. What a conundrum, what a paradox. We shall be saved by God from God. We started our sermon talking about how could God kill all those people. It's an act of judgment. Death ought to be a reminder to us that we are under judgment and we have a decision to make. How will we escape judgment? Well, we won't escape the first death, but how will we escape the second death? The very person who brings that wrath is the same person we need to run to for refuge. What an amazing thought. This is a Puritan writer who said, we find refuge from God in God. They have an amazing way with words, the Puritans. Love reading their works. Making God not exist like the atheist won't be an escape from God's wrath. And turning him into a God who doesn't punish like the liberals won't make us safe from God's wrath. Only believing in God's wrath and then fleeing to God's mercy to escape his wrath will be the only way that we escape his wrath. But beloved, and I love this, God is so amazing. 
Not only are we saved from hell, not only do we find refuge in God, but we find adoption. It's not just that we get this get out of hell card. We become His adopted sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, will reign with Him. Not only refuge, but adoption. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. You know what happened to Rahab? Yes, she was saved. We get to Matthew chapter 1 and read the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus' family tree. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And on it goes through the generations until we get to Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king, and eventually all the way to Jesus, the Messiah. Our Savior, our Lord, comes from the line of a former pagan prostitute. From prostitute to princess. Beloved, we are so much more than just saved from God's wrath. The same mighty right hand that executes judgment also pardons, blesses, anoints, coronates, and holds us close in arms of love. What a Savior. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, what a Savior you you are. Taking those of us who play the harlot with false ideas, false gods, secular humanism, exalting man instead of God. We are all guilty of harlotry. And we see that you save sinners. We understand now, God, that death is punishment for sin. And yet for those who believe, it is not the last word, but just the beginning of everlasting life with you. We thank you for this truth. It's amazing. It's the depths of its wonder and riches we'll never reach. We'll glorify you for all eternity for this amazing truth. And until that day, Lord, may we be found faithful to proclaim this truth to a world trying to escape death when they should be escaping wrath through faith in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.